0: Have you ever had that feeling of just being stopped in your tracks by nature? Maybe a beautiful beach or on a really stunning walk and the big outdoors. Well, it just takes your breath
1: away. We've had people that have never, ever, ever visited some of the national parks or visited any of these places. And they come and I swear to you, they sit down and they cry because first of all, they can't believe that's in the UK. Secondly, they just they're in awe and thirdly because they've just they've connected like it's an instant connection to your mind body and soul
0: no matter where you live the countryside in the uk is a really important part of our lives not only a source of food and a sanctuary for nature the countryside is also a crucial site for a good time and our well-being as well And the mirror you just heard just sparked a few great memories for me. I recently went to the Lake District. I'm a city girl, don't get me wrong, but I absolutely loved the countryside. I just felt fresh after visiting there. But have you ever wondered what it would be like if the South Downs, Snowdonia or the Cairngorms were for private use only? less than a century ago many of the most loved rural sites across the uk were not open to the public nowadays we have national parks fit for yogis dog walkers and adrenaline junkies but we also need to strike a balance with the people and animals who call it home remember that saying leave only footprints and take only photos at the heart of that is an important question who is the countryside for? I'm Kaylee Golden and this is How We Got Here, the podcast from UK Parliament about the people who turn big ideas into the laws that shape our society. In this episode, we'll be hearing from awesome adventurers, a parliamentary brain box and an earl as we find out how we got access to the countryside protected by law. This story is all about the UK Parliament committees, whose ideas often create the backbone of new laws, and how you can get your voice heard in committee inquiries. But first, let's get
2: outside. So typically on these adventures, I'm getting up with the sunrise and then I'm going until it's too dark to continue to navigate. So a lot of them, I was on my feet for 12 to 15 hours a day. My name's Jenny Tuff, I'm a writer and adventurer. We spoke
0: to Jenny Tuff, and that's her real name, you know, (laughs) about life in the outdoors and her experience running the most extreme solo marathons that you can imagine. She's
2: taken on some pretty major challenges. I started this project five years ago to try and run solo and unsupported across a mountain range on every continent. So it started when I went out to Kyrgyzstan and I wanted to run across the Tian Shan Mountains. It was about a thousand kilometres. It's very wild backcountry.
0: Jenny spoke about how her love for the mountains trickles into her whole way of thinking about life.
2: For a lot of people in a lot of walks of life, and this is why I love convincing people to take on outdoor challenges, because the metaphors for your real life are just so obvious and they're lessons that you'll learn in a way that's so enjoyable that you'll remember for the rest of your life. A lot of us face this. Am I good enough? Will I be able to achieve this? And you get to show yourself that you're tougher than you thought that you were, that you're capable of more than you thought you were.
0: And here in the UK, you don't need to go into extreme survival mode to have that experience
2: we are so spoiled in the uk i think people really underestimate that for such a relatively small island we have such an abundance of not just parks and green areas but also routes like set challenges that you can follow that anyone can just easily without a host of skills you don't need backcountry expedition skills like i have to do quite a lot of the uk's wilderness
0: jenny grew up in the canadian rockies where the wilderness can be very wild actually and because there are things there that can easily kill you there are restrictions and responsibilities when it comes to going outdoors
2: we have national parks but you pay when you get there you have to get permits you have to declare to a ranger where you're going to camp and stuff like that so logistically they're very tied up whereas the uk access is really fantastic and i'm going to go out on a limb here and say it is really one of the best if not the best in the world. You know getting to our parks is relatively easy. We have public transit that you can get to most of the parks with. You don't pay at the point of use which means that anyone who lives in the UK theoretically should be able to access our parks and we have so many trails and this is open for everyone and that is such a gift. The more that I travel the world the more that I really appreciate what an amazing thing it is and something that we should be proud of and really keep for as long as we can.
0: Thanks, Jenny. I don't know about you, but I'm already itching to get outside. So what's changed then? And why could Jenny's enjoyment of the countryside possibly have landed her in court a 100 years ago? Well, this podcast is about the ways laws have been changed to reflect the public need and what was happening in society. And to understand the need for change and how it happened, as usual, we need to look back in time. People have been debating how we access our landscape for centuries, but our right to get out and about today has its roots on a moor in Derbyshire. In 1932, a group of about 400 walkers climbed to the highest point of the Peak District, a plateau of moorland called Kinderscout. This wouldn't be unusual today, Kinderscout provides miles of footpaths to explore and beautiful views all the way to Manchester. But 90 years ago, these walkers weren't allowed to be there. They were trespassing. Many of the Ramblers were workers from industrial areas like Manchester and Sheffield, often working in tough conditions, and they felt a real need to experience the open air. The Liberal MP, Sir Arthur Hobhouse, described their situation to Parliament.
3: We are today one of the most densely populated countries in the world. More and more people are living in towns. Today, four out of every five are living in urban communities. And this has resulted in almost a complete separation of town and country. Yet, with the increasing nervous strain of life, it makes it all more necessary that we should be able to enjoy the peace and spiritual refreshment which only contact with nature can give.
0: So that was from 1949, but in 1932, law enforcement was less understanding of this need for space six of the trespassers were arrested and although the trespass itself was not a criminal offense five of them ended up in prison for breaching the peace no one was particularly impressed by their actions Landowners felt threatened and the walking associations didn't think that this direct action was likely to help the cause the conversation was moving but slowly after the second world war life in the uk had dramatically shifted Towns and cities had suffered damage that would take years to repair and there was a renewed sense that the UK's countryside was worth protecting and that everyone should have access to the peace it offered. The new post-war government recognised that people really needed access to the countryside and they decided to do something about it. They set up the National Parks Committee, which took in opinions and advice from charities and organisations which had been growing through the 1930s, when trespasses like the one on Kinder Scout were becoming fairly common. The chair of the National Parks Committee wrote a report, the Hobhouse Report. It was led by the MP from earlier. The report suggested areas which could become national parks and many of these were named in the 1949 National Parks and Access to the Countryside Act. In our other episodes, we learn about the ways that petitions, private members' bills and lobbying have made change happen. And now I'm going to talk to you about committees they are at the heart of the work of UK Parliament today. The National Parks Committee was set up by the government in 1945 and it was made up of government ministers and civil servants. Committees at UK Parliament are slightly different. Groups of MPs from different political parties or members of the House of Lords meeting, discussing, researching and recommending improvements. There are loads of different kinds and the cool thing about these committees is that you can work with some of them. Let's hear from Zoe Backhouse. She's trained as a committee clerk and currently works for the Petitions Committee at Parliament. She's also an absolute parliamentary brain box who was able to tell us a bit about the select committees that form a huge part of the work of UK Parliament today.
4: Select committees are appointed and created by the House of Commons so they're not the property of or run by the government in any way. And their role is mainly to conduct scrutiny, which is a kind of really boring phrase, but it's a really interesting, quite fun activity, which is that they're the people who are always checking and challenging the work of the government.
0: Every select committee deals with one particular issue and they investigate it and make recommendations to the government.
4: And one of their important powers is that for select committees, the government has to respond to them. So they have an agreement, there's an agreement between Parliament and government that the government will respond to the select committee. It doesn't have to do what the select committee says, but it has to send ministers to give evidence to the select committee as to respond to the select committee's letters.
0: There's one crucial aspect in this process,
4: you. Evidence is an absolutely vital part of a committee's work. No matter what committee it is, it has to have evidence to fuel any of its recommendations that it'll end up making to the government. And in most circumstances, that evidence is coming from the public in some ways.
0: The UK Parliament Committee's website, committees.parliament.uk, has lists of all the committee inquiries that are open for input from the public. And there is a specialist team at Parliament which reaches out to specific groups when their insight is needed.
4: So the public are central to parliamentary scrutiny of government departments basically like they are the core of what the committee is doing in a really traditional inquiry or investigation the committee will invite written and oral evidence which is basically a kind of fancy way of saying it wants people to send in information in writing and it will invite people to speak to it in person and anyone can submit written evidence to a select committee inquiry some of them are more likely to get general submissions than others for example the home affairs committee recently did an investigation into spiking and that's a really good example of where lots and lots of people were able to just submit their own experience so
0: they really are current issues that are relevant to us at the moment we'll hear more from zoe in a bit the government committee that created the national parks act took evidence from charities and campaign groups Arthur Uphouse, the chair, even took a tour around the country to see which areas could be candidates for national parks. Interestingly, the National Parks Act only applies in England and Wales because the land law in Scotland is devolved. This means it's decided by the Scottish Parliament, not the UK Parliament. Things work a bit differently there.
2: Of course, we have the right to roam, which any Scottish person will take with great pride about our right to roam, which basically means what it sounds like that you can travel anywhere you can camp and this is the big one is that you can camp anywhere for one night only as long as it's not on someone's private property and so yeah the Scottish right to roam is a fantastic thing for everyone I know that they don't have it in England I always factor that in when I'm down there could England follow Scotland's lead it's going to be a little bit more difficult there's obviously a lot more people so you have to be a lot more sensitive about whose land you're on or where you're allowed to be but that's what's really great about the national parks is that if you're inside a park you generally are able to move around quite freely.
0: Despite this amazing access in the UK Jenny touched on how barriers still exist for us to get out to the countryside not necessarily legal ones but social and economic ones.
2: Something that I think the outdoor community has become a lot more aware of in recent years is that there is a class divide when it comes to who uses the outdoors. So as much as the outdoors are available to everyone, as much as, you know, something I'd love to say is that the mountains don't care. They really don't care what gender, ethnicity, orientation you are. They don't care how wealthy you are. They don't care about anything. Once you're there, it's the freest place in the world. However, I spend a lot of time going around to outdoor shows and gatherings and meetings, and there is not a wealth of diversity in the room when you go to these places. And that's something the outdoor industry has recognized as a huge problem. And I really see the British outdoor community trying very hard to make sure that everyone knows this is for everyone and reach out to groups that are very much underrepresented.
0: From chatting to Jenny Tuff, it's clear there are still barriers within the outdoor community. Less of a legal divide like the Ramblers and Kinder Scout, but a social and a cultural one. Only 3% of visitors to our national parks are from ethnic minorities. And in 2018, it was estimated that 18% of children living in the most deprived areas had not been on any trips into nature. I'm personally part of this demographic, and I didn't go on any trips to nature, like with my family. I only went with school. And even now as an adult, I've never been with my friends. I've only ever gone for work and that's it. But things are definitely changing.
1: My name's Amira, known as Amira the Wonderless, And I am the founder of a group called The Wonderless Women. And I'm the founder of the group, which is a group to help um, underrepresented women to have access to the outdoors, specifically targeting women from ethnic minority and muslim women.
0: Covid brought so many challenges and difficulties to people's lives but one thing that lockdown did do for a lot of people was make us appreciate our natural surroundings a lot more and it was the same for Amira. She started the Wonderless Women in Lockdown vlogging her experiences walking in the Lake District near her home.
1: I started vlogging and putting that on social media and you know, so many people were having an interest in that. They were like, "Oh, we would love to join you." And oh my gosh, you wear a hijab and veil, and you know, you do all these activities, and do you not feel out of place. And then I actually realized. I looked back and I thought, "Oh, like to me, it was normal, but in other people's eyes, it wasn't normal because they didn't see that representation. They didn't see women that looked like them doing these activities. Being a South Asian girl, being confined in a space where you feel sometimes." restricted by what culture expects of you and being in a place where you're trying to battle the identity and I just felt like I never fitted in like anywhere and then I got married and I got divorced and after that I found that outdoors to be a healing space for me it clicked to me that all you have to do is go out and get outdoors and go for a walk and be connected to nature because that's what helped me heal
0: we asked Amira about those statistics about how few people of colour access the outdoors. It's obviously a very complex topic and different for every community. But Amira linked it back to the ancestors that moved here.
1: When you look at ethnic minorities and the place that they come from, especially from South Asia, a lot of the places that they come from have been like nature environments and countryside and mountains stuff. But when they came here, they couldn't bring that here because their main focus was to start a family, work, and live. Obviously, for the children, they've not grown up knowing the outdoors. If something's not known to you, how are you gonna then start that? But I think that's a barrier in itself, and I think there's other barriers as well. It's the lack of knowing the the education and resources. You know, usually, if you've got families that have been brought up here and they know, they can pass that on. They can pass that on. But how, if our ancestors have come from different countries, they can't pass that on if they don't know you know and the other barriers that i see is financial issues kit safety issues confidence and again it's the not knowing not seeing anyone look like them do that so they are thinking can i do this i don't see brown people outdoors but can i still do this
0: if Amira is inspiring you to get closer to nature for the first time, the national parks are a great place to begin your exploration. There's loads of information about getting started, walking groups and guides online. Just search for the national park nearest to you. We really hope that you are enjoying this podcast and would love to know more about what you really think. If you could spare a minute, click the link in the show notes to do a quick survey about you and what you would like to hear more of. It will really help us out so we can make sure we are making better podcasts for you. Amira and Jenny make a great case for the power of being out in open air. We have so many great outdoor resources to make good use of. And we've learned that some of them are thanks to a government committee. So we're sorted, right? Everyone should just get outdoors and fill their lungs. Well, kind of. Although we've made great progress with countryside access, there are still issues relating to the great outdoors and well-being that Parliament is looking at.
3: There's always a bit of a tension between permitting people access to countryside and protecting nature and making sure that you're not damaging the very landscape that people want to go and see.
0: That was Charles Courtney. He's the 19th Earl of Devon. He sits as a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. He knows about select committees and the countryside, having spent time working in both. Charles was recently on a House of Lords select committee called the National Plan for Sport and Recreation. He told us a bit about it.
3: The focus of the select committee was the nation's health and well-being and the way in which the nation's health and well-being is impacted by sports, recreation and an active lifestyle.
0: Sometimes politics seems full of arguments and point scoring, but when it comes to the long-term health of the environment and our population, collaboration, consultation and creative solutions are really important if we're going to make a difference. Select committees are a great way of doing this because, as Zoe said earlier, they're made up of all sides of the political spectrum and they can hold the government to account. The House of Laws has its own system of select committees, which cover the broad themes across government departments, such as sports and recreation. They also gather evidence directly from the public and experts. And it's really important that those voices represent a real mix of views and experiences.
3: I think it is really important a When a select committee is working, I think it's important that they hear all arguments and are able to bring together evidence from across an issue and across all society. But also, particularly amongst the sort of rural and the farming community, they often feel that they're totally left behind, that Westminster serves, you know, the interests of the suburban and the urban majority, and that everyone forgets about what's actually going on out and about in the rural hinterland. And I think it's very important that you're providing a voice both to those rural farmers, often who are struggling economically, particularly at the moment, but equally you're giving a voice, for example, to those organising inner city sports clubs and football clubs right in the middle of London or right in the middle of Birmingham and Manchester. So you really get voices from across the community as to how sport and activity is currently going on.
0: When Charles joined the select committee, he noticed that some crucial people needed to be heard.
3: They'd taken evidence from the Ramblers Association and from others who were interested in increasing access to the countryside. But I noticed that they hadn't got any evidence from those managing the land and those with responsibility for or who might be asked to provide that access. And I was very much of the view, obviously I am a landowner myself, but I very much thought that if the report was going to be listened to by those who would be providing access, that we should get some evidence from them.
0: This is a really interesting point. It's great to know that people in Parliament are looking to get as many people involved as possible on issues like this one.
3: We all have the same interests at heart, which is the the health and well-being of the environment and of the population of the country and finding ways to marry the two so that farmers are encouraged to provide access, but they're also supported financially by the Environmental Land Management Scheme to provide that access.
0: For many of us, lockdown changed our view on the countryside and we realise just how precious it is. And as Sir Hobhouse saw back in 1949 and Charles Courtney sees today, the more town and country understand each other, we are all better off and we can all play a part. Before I go, I asked Zoe how we can find out more about select committees and follow their work.
4: Yeah, committee sessions are available online if they're public in general 90% of select committee work you can catch online you can see it on parliamentlive.tv that's also where you can go to watch the chamber streamed live so it's a good place for kind of any parliamentary watching
0: so is that parliament's equivalent of twitch
4: <laughs> yeah you can see you can catch pretty much anything that you like but it's often easiest to find out about these things on something like twitter or by just googling the committee's name
0: So whether you're a Twitcher who loves to spot a rare bird or someone who really cares about the evolution of the law protecting our beautiful landscape, there's a way of keeping track of what's going on. Go to committees.parliament.uk to see what's coming up and how you can put your thoughts forward on the issues that matter to you. You never know, you might be advising government on a new law. I'm Kaylee Golden. Thanks for listening to How We Got Here. Thanks also to Jenny Tuff, Amira Patel, the Earl of Devon and Zoe Backhouse for leading us through today's story. For more information about anything we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes or go to learning.parliament.uk forward slash podcast. You can follow UK Parliament, the House of Lords or the House of Commons across your socials to keep up to date with what's going on. This was a Story Things production for UK Parliament. The producer was Freya Hellier, and the writer
4: was Josh Shantana.